Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, Hebrews chapter 11. We've got three verses today. We've been doing two at a time. We're, we're really upping the ante slowly, uh, step by step here. So we've got three today, eight, nine, and ten, and uh, a few less slides. So it's, it's, it's good. Uh, the Lord continues to take us through this verse by verse, and it's, it's amazing. When we got to chapter 11, I really had no idea that he was going to want to stop and do one week on each of the people that the Lord calls out. But this is really cool, this story about Abram. So before we open the word of God, let's, let's go to prayer. Lord, I just thank you again so much for this time, and God, for your word. Lord, we are so thankful that you called us when you did, just like you, when you called Abram all those years ago. God, in his walk and the testimony that you wrote on his life, we can learn and glean so much from in these days in which we live. And so, Lord, we pray that you would sit and teach us everything from your word, from 1 John 2.27, and that, God, we would leave this place encouraged by the call you have on us. Thank you for the model of how to follow you and to walk out boldly to a place that you call us to. We love you and we thank you for it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, amen. So as we're going through this, uh, like we cover kind of at the beginning of, of each message here, just 1 John 2.27, remember that verse always as you're studying the word of God, that it the anointing of the Holy Spirit will teach you everything out of the Bible, but you've got to give him a chance and an opportunity to do that. And one of the greatest things you can do in your life, in your walk with the Lord, is to allow the author himself to sit with you as you study the Bible. It is, there is nothing more special than allowing the Holy Spirit to sit with you as you open the word of God on your own and for him to teach you. I, I just, I cannot stress it enough and encourage all of you that as you're studying the Bible, there is nothing wrong with listening to pastors, listening to uh, picking up a commentary or listening to other messages. None of that's wrong. But if you're not putting him first and allowing him to teach you first, then give him a chance before anyone else. You, you will, your walk will exponentially grow uh, dramatically through doing that. So just keep that in mind because we need, we need him. The word of God is a spiritual exercise. It's not a logical one. And so you need to invite the one that breathed you into life to come in and to teach you everything. So on our outline, we're still here in chapter 11. We're nearing the end. There's only 13 chapters in Hebrews. So if you go a couple of verses a week for, I mean, we might finish like next summer at this point, but it, it will pick up. Chapter 11 is kind of lengthy, 
but it is so deep. So just hang with us. We're getting through this a few verses at a time. And if you remember, the entire book is built around these five warnings. Can you go to the next slide, Aaron? The entire book is built around these five warnings. Go one more. We're going to go kind of fast because Abram. So these five warnings, the danger of drifting, the danger of hardening the heart, the danger of failing to mature, the danger of willful sin, and the danger of refusing. And remember, each one of those is a pattern. Now, what you will notice, and what I've kind of noticed as I was studying Abram's life, is that he never started to drift. And as a result, God continued to reveal to him the call that he had on his life. And it's amazing when you look at other men of the Bible, like Solomon, for example, Solomon starts to drift in a big, big way. He's called to do some very mighty things, but he starts to drift, and that call starts to lessen on his life. If you really study Solomon's life, he was not supposed to do three things. He was not supposed to increase wives, horses, or gold, and he did all three abundantly to, to more than anyone else that had ever lived. And as a result, the call on his life starts to diminish over time because he's drifting, his heart is hardening to the things of the world. And as a result, Jesus, remember what Jesus said, the lilies of the field are arrayed more beautifully than Solomon despite all of his wealth. See, God didn't care about any of that. He wanted his heart and Solomon refused to give it to him. So I'm excited to talk to Solomon when we get to to heaven. I just think it'll be such an interesting man to speak with, uh, one that has had more wisdom than anyone else to ever live, and what, a, what an amazing testimony that way also. But the warnings are in place because God is longing for this deep relationship with us, right? Never forget that. Like James says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And so God is a gentleman, He's not going to over-pursue you if you keep refusing him. He's, he's a gentleman. He will call you. He will pursue you. He's always there waiting for you. But if you refuse him and you turn the other way and you keep walking, you have sovereign free will because you're created in his image. And so he's not going to force himself on you. And that's a part of walking alongside him. You have to be in constant pursuit. And to do that, that means you've got to stay in the word of God daily, number one. That's your first line of defense because the word is your offensive weapon and the shield of faith, your defensive weapon. And so when you think about the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, but then in Ephesians 5, so it's your offensive weapon, but in Ephesians 5, it's also your shield of faith because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God from Romans 10, 17. So it's your defense by your shield, but it's also your weapon. And it's a, if you study like ancient warfare, like the Romans, for example, or the Greeks or the Persians and how they battled with a shield and a sword, the shield a lot of times, yes, it was defensive, but they used it to make offensive maneuvers a lot. So it's just incredible that those are the two things. The word of God is your your place that you should go to, to to war against the enemy. Because you and I right now are in a spiritual warfare. We're not in a physical one, technically yet, <laughs> uh, but we're not there yet. So our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the principalities and the wickedness in high places. And so 
How do you battle against them? Only the word of God. That's the only thing Jesus used against Satan in the temptation in the wilderness was the word. Jesus could have just spoken or drawn a sword and been done with it immediately, but he didn't. He battled using the word of God, and that's the model for us. So to go through these, we're just going to read through one through seven real quick from Hebrews 11 to get the feel of reminder of where we are. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And so as a result of this faith, it's the substance of things hoped for, and it's through faith we understand that it framed the worlds. Remember, those were time domains when we studied that, and we got into a lot of quantum physics and everything, but because of all of this, what should our response be in walking through this world? It's by faith we should, and then fill in the blank, overcome the trials and tribulations of the world, just like Noah did, just like Enoch did, and we've studied them, and today we're going to study Abram. But remember Romans 8, 16 through 17, because each of the men listed the, through and women through Hebrews 11, each one of them has an inheritance that they never saw on the earth, but yet they, they will inherit it in the resurrection at the millennium. And so it's amazing how the Lord is imploring us to do the same thing. We have the same promise and call on our lives that there's an inheritance. So Romans 8, 16 through 17, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. See, nowhere in the Old Testament was Abram a joint heir with Christ. That is a privilege for you and I. Abram's inheritance is earthly all through the Bible. It's this land. It's the extent of the land. It's descendants. It's, it's all tied to the earth. Your inheritance is tied to heaven. And so you have a higher place of inheritance because you are a priest and a king with Jesus. Abram was not. He was never a king and a priest with Jesus. But you are, from 2 Peter, we are a royal priesthood. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, By faith Abel offered under God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. That would be an amazing gift from the Lord for, for our generation, our people, this time right now to see the rapture. What an amazing gift from God to never see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And that's the testimony that you and I want, that we please God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Remember, when you step out in faith, sometimes when you're doing it, you are also condemning the world by doing it because you are showing the standard by which God holds us. You can go to the next slide, Aaron. Oh, is it stuck? Okay, hold on. That's why I've got a printout out here. Okay, we got it. Never mind. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. Okay, so we're introduced to Abraham here in Hebrews 11. So remember, when he first shows up in the Bible, his name is Abram. So you may hear me, even after he gets named Abraham, I may call him Abram just out of habit. But Genesis eleven twenty six, And Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So here's where Abram first shows up in Genesis 11. His call starts in the very next chapter, Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house and unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. So notice the call initially from God in Genesis 12. It's just get up and leave. That's the call. The call has, God does not tell him, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars of the sky and the sands of of the beaches. He doesn't tell him how much of the land he's going to give him. He doesn't even tell him that he's going to get the land yet. He doesn't tell him what land it is. He just says, get up and go out to a land that I will show you. That's it. That's the only call that Abram starts with. In Genesis 12, 3, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. You know, this is one promise that has shielded the United States for so long because of our commitment to Israel, our commitment to Abram's offspring. God promises, I will bless them that bless thee If you study Great Britain from World War II, after World War II was ended, they had all of that land around Israel, and they annexed a huge chunk of it to call it Transjordan. And and Britain was actually behind all of the treaties to found the nation of Jordan instead of giving that land rightfully who it belongs to, which was Israel. And if you study England from that point on, everything about that nation declines from that one moment in history because they refused to bless the Israelites and to bless Abram's descendants. Instead, what do they do? They try to divide the land, the land that biblically belongs to Israel. It is their land. It's not Jordan's land It's not Saudi Arabia's land. It's not all these other nations. It is the land belongs to Israel. As far as God's concerned, it's their land and it always has been. And so when you study England, from that point on, GDP growth slowed. 
uh, divorce rates increased, murder rates increased, uh, trade with the, the rest of the world decreased. Just on any measure of success for a nation, they started to decline. And if you, one of the things that the United States has really done a pretty good job at for, for most of our lives, at least, has been the, the unwavering support of Israel. Now, we had some years that it was rough, right, during the Obama administration. Uh, even Trump, when he did the Abraham Accords, when he made that move, I was, I was kind of cringing. I'm like, oh, man, you're trying to give part of the land that belongs to Israel to someone else and met, annex this peace deal. That is not good. So thankfully, uh, the Lord kind of delivered us out of a lot of that. But when you study Israel, just look at any nation that supports them and watch them prosper. It's amazing how that promise, it just holds true all the way from the time of Abraham. So Genesis 12, 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. So notice the call on Abram's life. He was, at, he was 75 years old. That's pretty, that's pretty long in life to finally be called to something. But in the Hebrew, actually, in the grammatical text of the Hebrew, it reads that before God even finished his, his speech to Abram, he was up gathering his, his things to depart. So Abram was getting the call and in the process going, okay, all right, we're, we're taking off, you know, not even knowing the rest of it yet. He was, he was very faithful in that, in going right away. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gathered in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. So they're journeying from Haran to Canaan. Now, the land of Canaan is what we would call modern-day Israel. It's the Canaanites. You read a lot about that in the Bible. It's kind of the northern part of Israel. And Abram passed through the land under the place of, of what we would call today Shechem, Sikkim, under the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was there, was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, unto thy seed... Okay, so he's getting another piece of the call now. Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So notice the progression. He calls him first to leave. Then he gets to the land that God showed him. Then he says, unto your seed, I'm giving you this land. By this point, Abram doesn't even know if he's a part of this inheritance yet. God has not said anything about Abram getting any of this land. He's only now said, I'll give it to your offspring. So think about the call and what Abram is going through. Just imagine today you being called to do something, sell everything, move to a city, and you don't even know where you're going or what you're going to do when you get there, but God is calling you to it. And then once you get there, there's a house or something and some land Okay, to your offspring, your future descendants, I'm going to give you, them this. Nothing to do with you yet. You have no part of this other than God telling you to go. That, that is an amazing amount of faith and strength from Abram. So in verse 8, Genesis 12, verse 8, And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, 
and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and high on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So Shechem, there's a map here of Israel. You can see the Mediterranean on the left. Shechem's kind of that northern um, central part of what we'd call modern day Israel. The Dead Sea is that, that little lake that's in the, set, the bottom right-hand corner of the picture. The bottom left picture is kind of a view of probably what Abram saw, something like that, when journeying in that land. The upper left is a picture of it at dusk today in Shechem, uh, the cities that are there uh, built into the sides of the mountains. So just to give you an idea of kind of the terrain he was going through. So you fast forward a few chapters. Well, Abram by this point, has no descendants. He's been told his descendants will inherit this land, and it's not, he's not even promised a son until Genesis 15. And so he's promised a son here in Genesis 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That same message is for us today, for your children, for your marriage, for your job, for anywhere you are in your life. The Lord is your shield and your reward, both. He, he is your defense because he is the word of God from John 1.1. And so let Jesus take care of all of that in your life. When you are going through things in your life, you do not, if you are walking with God, and you are abiding with Jesus, you do not have to defend yourself because he is your shield and your defense and your counselor, and you do not have to rail accusations or anything back at people. Let Jesus take care of it, and he will. I promise you he will. And Abram said, Lord God, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless? childless. So he's 75. He's, this, some years have passed now. He still doesn't have any children. And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. So Abram, if you remember from Genesis 14, when he fights the kings, I didn't cover the whole story of his life. We're hitting some highlights here. But he was probably one of the wealthiest men in the world at this time. Because remember, he musters an army from his own house to go rescue Lot. And so what he's saying is that there, I, I have no heir so he was concerned about his children, because he has no children, becoming heir of the promise that God has given him. And Eliezer actually means comforter. And so when you get, we're going to look at the story of Isaac next week with Sarah, but when you get to that story of Abram offering Isaac, Abraham by this point, offering Isaac, it's his servant, Eliezer, that goes to gather a bride for the promised son. And Eliezer means comforter. It's the whole thing is a model of the Lord offering his son. The son is sacrificed, theoretically. Isaac's obviously saved in the story, but Jesus died. And then after Jesus goes away from the story for a while, he ascends to heaven. The comforter, the Holy Spirit, goes to gather a bride for him. And then he meets us out in the air when that bride is coming forth from the field. And so the whole story is, is a type or a model of the church, but that's his concern right now. That's Abram's concern at this point, that he has no steward or no child to be heir of this promise. 
and all he has is the steward of his house, Eliezer. So he's concerned that, Lord, you said my descendants will inherit this land, this land of Canaan, but right now all I have is a steward of my house. So is the promise for him? And the Lord's really encouraging him right now in this call. And Abram said, behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Because at that time, you had to be a son born in your, the father's household to be an heir to anything of that father. You, know, you couldn't just pass on your goods to someone else at that time. So it needed to be someone of your household. And if you get a picture, Abram, he is so gutsy before the Lord. You know, When you read the story of Abram, and, and we'll study Sodom and Gomorrah here in just a little bit, but he is bold before God. Hey, you told me my descendants were going to inherit this land. Look, you haven't given me anyone. I mean, he's like calling God out almost that, hey, you've made this promise and I've not seen any of it fulfilled. I can't even have a child yet. What is going on? And the Lord, I just love how the Lord is so patient with him in all of that, despite his, at times you can see his frustration with this hasn't happened yet. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him saying, this shall not be thine heir. In other words, Eliezer is not your heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So it's not just a descendant that he's promised. Now God's revealing something even further in the call that his descendants will be as the stars of heaven. So an innumerable multitude of descendants for Abram, which is amazing that he is, he is now calling them, him or, or revealing to him that his descendants will not just be the heir of this household, but of many nations, an innumerable multitude. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness in Genesis 15, verse 6. So it's just a simple question. You know, is righteousness accounted for you in your call? When you are called to do something, if you believe in the Lord, it is accounted to you for righteousness. And Abram's response is a perfect model for us. He he obviously had times of struggle, right? Of, Lord, you've promised this to me, and I haven't seen any of it yet. Well, just be patient. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. Keep trusting in the Lord. Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Now, Ur of the Chaldees, if you study that, Abram came out of an idolatry-worshiping family. He did not come out of a godly family that was in church every Sunday, that uh, had their kids, you know, fine-tuned or anything like that. He came out of this idolatry-worshiping family of, in Ur. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon." So God is instituting a sacrifice here that has not been instituted in the Bible yet. These are Levitical sacrifices of the Levites, and God has not instituted that yet. 
So keep that in mind. There's something very peculiar going on here. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. So the Lord had, a, had direction for him. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now there's even a lesson there in that for us because when you fast forward to the New Testament, the birds of the air from Matthew 13 are the ministers of Satan. And there's a model here for us that when you are following the Lord and you are sacrificing your life, your time, your resources, your energy, whatever it is, you go down the list, the ministers of Satan will come and try to take that sacrifice, right? And that's what they were trying to do. They're trying to come and take away the obedience Abram was showing, and what you do to combat that, obviously in the story, Abram runs, he's flailing his arms. And I kind of think of it as like running through the park in Central Park or something with the pigeons. You know, he's like running and flailing his arms. But what you do is you take the word of God against it. And you, and you start to rebuke the enemy using the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the only name by which every knee shall bow, and the word of God and you rebuke those ministers of Satan, that they have no claim on your call, they have no claim in your life, they have no claim on your children, that you cancel those assignments by the word of God, and you are standing washed clean by the blood of Jesus and on the rock that is going to destroy the beast system at some point, and that you are called a child of the king. Because by faith, you are called just like Abram. You have a call on your life by faith. So Genesis 15, verse 12, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. So get the picture. Abram has laid out the sacrifices He's ready to meet God, and the Lord puts him in a deep sleep, and God alone is going to recite the words of this covenant to Abram. Abram did nothing to be a part of it. He didn't agree to it. He didn't, I mean, he, obviously he was agreeing to it because he was being obedient, but he did not affirm the words of the Lord. He didn't, he didn't do something in the process of the sacrifice, nothing, nothing. He's asleep at this point, and a great horror falls upon him, and God starts to prophesy about his descendants in the Exodus events already, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. He's speaking of, of Egypt in the Exodus, because that land is not part of the land promised to Abram and his descendants, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And we all remember the story of the Exodus, right? That when his people were delivered, everyone in Egypt gave them silver, gold, great wealth and substance, and a lot of that was used to fashion the tabernacle in the wilderness. So God plundered the unrighteous, gave it to his children, to build a house of worship and presence for him to meet his people. That's amazing. 
And if you really study this, the land that's not theirs, from the river Nile, I've got a picture here in a minute, but from the river Nile east is Israel's. So the land they were in, remember Gashon, Gashon uh, was, or Gohan, I mean, I'm sorry, was in the northwestern part. So they were afflicted in a land that's not theirs. Even God's word holds true in that sense. So in Genesis 15, 15, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now this is another amazing statement from God. Your children are going to be taken to a land that's not theirs. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years there, and they were afflicted 400 years. If you I should have added a chart of this, but they were in the land longer. They didn't start to be afflicted, remember, until Moses in that time. So they're afflicted there, but they have to stay there because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, the Amorite is in the land of Israel at this time, and they're sinning. They're blaspheming God. There's all kinds of idolatry worship. There's angel worship going on. There are a lot of weird things happening in the land, warring against the king, but their sin, God is giving them over 400 years to repent and to get right with God before he judges that land and brings Joshua and Caleb through the Jordan and conquers it. So think about that, what God says, their sin is not yet full. See, there's, there comes a point all through the Bible, there comes a point where the sin of the people reach a point of no return, that they have to be judged for it. And we see that same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah when God says the, the cry of that place has reached to heaven. And so it's a volumetric term. It's building and building and building and building. And finally, it reaches to heaven to the point that God has to move and judge it. See, in his long-suffering grace and kindness, he allows it to go to a certain point. But, at that, but it can go no further at, at that point. That's why in the tribulation, the great tribulation is when the Antichrist stands in the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God. It's like finally that volumetric point is reached. It snaps in the back half of the seven-year period the Lord calls the great tribulation because it's gone far enough and now ultimate judgment is coming. That's when the bold judgments are and all of that unfolds. So it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace. Now this, this obviously is not like one of those furnaces from the Beauty and the Beast castle that comes alive and you know, is walking around from the basement or anything. This is, this is the Shekinah glory of God raining down from heaven, the pillar of fire that led them in the wilderness, and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. So God alone is walking in between the sacrifice and starts to recite the words of the covenant. Remember, Abram's asleep. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given them this land from the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, that goes through the middle of Iraq, where Babylon was, if you remember with 
Uh, Nimrod tried to build Babel, and then Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt it. Saddam Hussein rebuilt it. That's that river, the river uh, Euphrates. Actually, the great river Euphrates shows up at the very beginning with the Garden of Eden. So it's, it's had a long history. But I give this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So think about this. God had not revealed the extent of the land until this point now. So remember the call, go out. Okay, you went out. Now this land I'm going to give your descendants. Okay, that's a promise. Now you're not just one descendant, but they're going to be the multitude of heavens. Okay, and it's not just the land of the Chaldees, of Canaan, but now it's the land from Egypt, the Nile River, to the Euphrates. And so that picture in the bottom right kind of shows you geographically where those two rivers are. So the Nile River is almost on the eastern edge of Egypt, and then the Euphrates River just cuts right through the middle of Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and empties into the Persian Gulf down there. And in the middle of that that entire swath of land, right there in the middle in that little yellow bright spot against the Mediterranean is modern-day Israel. So they occupy an area of land that is one-tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma by acreage. So think about that. They have been promised this incredible amount of land, and right now they have one-tenth the size of the state that we live in. That is unbelievable. But they will get this at some point. So God had not revealed the full extent of the land covenant in Genesis 12. Remember, he was 75 years in Genesis 12. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born in Genesis 21, verse 5. So there's a 25-year period that the call becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. This wasn't like a six-month process. This took decades for him to get more and more of God's revelation. Okay, in Genesis 15, 19 through 21, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites and the Hittites, lots of tites, and the Perizzites and the Rephaim. Uh, the Rephaim is a Nephilim tribe. We're going to talk about that in the prophecy discussion after we finish Hebrews and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gigashites, and the Jebusites. So all these people that are occupying these lands, that's who Abram's going, his descendants are going to go and conquer. So then you kind of fast forward a little bit some years later, and Abram's name has changed at the age of 99 in Genesis 17. So this is 24 years later in Genesis 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, how can you walk before God and be perfect? Well, it's really simple. When you attribute Jesus to your life, God views you as perfect. Even though you may have every fault in the world, God calls you perfect when you clothe yourself with the garments of righteousness from Jesus. It's not your righteousness, it's not your holiness, it's his that makes you perfect before a holy, righteous God. So remember, he was 75 years old at his first call, and he died at the age of 175 in Genesis 25, verse 7. So this call was a hundred-year period that he had to live out what the Lord was calling him to do. And I'll make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, 
As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. And surely Abraham is a father of many nations. Even the Muslim world, all of the Islamic Muslim nations cry, Father Abraham. Because, remember, Abraham was, got a little impatient. He, Sarah couldn't have a, a baby, and so he took Hagar and had Ishmael, and, and all of those Muslim nations were birthed out of him. And so that's why when you see the, this beast system trying to rise up in our world, one of the keys that they're trying to do is to merge the three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And, and the Pope calls it Krishlam. If you ever hear that phrase, that's what he's talking about, is merging the Islamic faith and Christianity because we all come from Father Abraham, Right? We all must worship the same God, so let's all get together and, and kumbaya. And that's why if you, if you look this up, they have sites all over the Middle East they're building that have a synagogue, a church chapel, and a mosque all on the same site so that all three of the Abrahamic religions can come together and coexist, right? That we all worship God, so let's all come together and get along and peace between us. And it is blasphemy. It's just that simple. That there is one God and his name's Jesus. It's not Muhammad. It's not anyone else. And so they need, there's a lot of bad things that the enemy is setting up right now for the end times, but that's one of them. So in Genesis 17, verse 5, neither shall thy name anymore be called Abram, but my name shall be called Abraham. Thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. So notice that the Lord, all he does is he inserts the breath of God into his name. So at this point, Abram's 99. He's been called and walking with God forever. He's deepening his relationship with the Lord and trusting more and more and growing and maturing in his walk. And God imparts the breath of God on him at this moment. So all, that, all the difference in his name from Abram to Abraham is an H, and in Hebrew, it's a hey, it's the breath of God. It's the hey, it's the, the ruha, okay, the breath. He breathes into Abraham. The same thing with Sarai. Sarai goes from Sarai to Sarah. So God just inserts the breath of God into her as she matures in her walk. In Genesis 17, verse 6, And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And keep in mind, you know, when we are in our walk with Jesus, yes, when you get saved, you are born again, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. But then as you trust in God and as you submit more to him, he imparts the breath of God in your life. The Holy Spirit starts to fill your very fiber and being and who you are, and it overflows out of you. That's why when Peter really matures in his walk with Jesus, He's been saved for a long time, but he's going out to do something, and the Lord says, Peter, being filled with the Holy Ghost, went out to do such and such. It wasn't that he just got the Holy Ghost. He's allowing the Holy Ghost to overtake his life in full submission to God. Okay, Genesis 17, verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee 
and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, once again, God reveals another part of the call. He never told him for how long his descendants would have the land. He never told him how long he would have it. But now God finally clarifies the call, that it's an everlasting possession. Everlasting means everlasting, never ending. (laughs) That's what it means. It does not mean temporarily from 1948 to 2022. It doesn't mean from 1948 to 2030. It means forever. And God means that. And that's why when you see people, geopolitical people, gather together and try to figure out how can we divide the land, the UN, something like 80% of all UN resolutions have to do with Israel and their land. It's, it's so spiritually driven that most of the world misses it. All they know is, for some reason, they think Israel is the baddest, worst set of people on planet Earth, and they're not the ones strapping suicide bombs on themselves and going into markets. They are, in fact, if you study, go look up the Nobel Peace Prize winners, uh, the most advancements in technology, look at how many of them are Jews. The world is blessed because of God's people. They're the largest exporter of fruit to Europe, and yet their land size is so tiny. They truly are a blessing, an abundant blessing to the world. Some of the most advanced uh, advancements in medicine and science today come out of Israel. Security, weapons technology for defense, you just go down the list, they are remarkable. And there's like a couple million of them. It's, it's amazing how God just blesses that land. And it was a barren wasteland before they got back into it. If you look up what Mark Twain said about Israel when he went through it, he had no idea, he could not imagine why God had such a call on this land. It was so barren and desertous. There was nothing there. But all of a sudden, May 14th of 1948, Israel becomes a nation again, and they're in the land. It is a fruitful, abundant, watered land now with trees and beauty and everything around it. God has a blessing upon that land. And I think if you unfolded the, the dimensions that we were talking about a few weeks ago, if you really unfolded all those and uncurled them, I bet Israel and Jerusalem specifically, I bet it is centroid to the throne room of the universe. It's probably right where God sits on his throne, which is why Satan wants it so bad from Isaiah 14. So note the progression of Abram's walk by faith and then what's revealed. Remember, he's called out by faith to leave all he knows. It says nothing about Abram getting the land himself. Just go. Abram questions God for not giving him a child yet, but God confirms his promise. Abram continues to walk by faith and reveals that his descendants will not just be one, but more than the stars of heaven. God declares that Abram will be given the land of the Chaldees, so it's not just for his descendants, but he has a part in the inheritance as well. Abram's offspring will be afflicted by God, but God promises to deliver them and give them great substance. God reveals the extent of the land he's given to Abram's descendants. It's not just the land of Canaan, it's from the Nile to the Euphrates. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham and reveals for how long he's giving this land forever, an everlasting covenant. And so every step, the response by Abram 
grows the extent of the revelation and the extent of the promise. And so cling to that in your walk, that as you walk with the Lord, the extent of your call and the depth of the promise of that call is going to be revealed little by little by little. It's exactly when the children of Israel were roaming through the wilderness of Saudi Arabia, God would tell them to march so far you could only see from a short distance, you know, maybe from here to the back of the parking lot because it was, the terrain was so tight and windy. You had no idea what was around the bend. And that's, that is applicable to us in our walk that when the Lord called eight families out of the world to start a, a random church in Oklahoma City in the middle of the entire world saying you can't congregate as a church, that you can't sing out loud and gather to worship. Honestly, I had no idea what he was going to do with it. I had no clue. And he's still revealing little by little along the way. And the question just is that simple. Will you be obedient to keep trusting me and to walk with me? So Abraham then progresses to get insight as his relationship draws closer to God he gets insight into God's own battle plan at Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, starting verse 1, The Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door to he, in the heat of the day, and he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. Now one of these is Jesus. It's Jesus and two angels. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. As if, you know, Jesus needed rest at this point. But, and I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hasted unto the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd to fetch a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man. And he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. It's amazing how Jesus loves to commune and eat with his people all through the Bible. And if you really want to trip up, you know, Jews that do not believe in Jesus, non-Messianic Jews, point out Genesis 18 to them that Abraham served Jesus a non-Levitical, non-kosher meal because he took a calf and he baked the calf in the mother's milk. And you're not supposed to do that according to Leviticus, but Abraham did it. So that's, that's kind of interesting. And they said unto him, where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed. And that's what Isaac means. The name Isaac means laughter or joy. So because Sarah laughed, God names her son after laughter. He has such a cool sense of humor. Saying, after I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? 
And the Lord said to Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not. Like <laughs> She's embarrassed now, right? She's caught. For she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but you, you laughed. I heard it. Uh, don't, you're not going to slip this by me. I saw what you did. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So get the, the concept here that as you draw closer to God, this is later in his life, he hasn't fulfilled his full call yet, but he's growing and maturing. God starts to have a relationship with him where he's revealing battle plans with Abraham. He's letting Abraham in on strategy, on battle plans, on how is God going to move in this area. The same is true for you and I, that as you draw closer to God, he will let you in on how he fights for his people. He will let you in on what he's going to do to your enemies, to the enemies of his church, to the enemies of his people. He wants you to be a part of that. But the question is, can he trust you with it? Is he showing it to you so that you know how to pray? Or is he showing it to you for something else? For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I'll know. And the Lord does the exact same thing today. You know, there's a cry reaching to heaven. I remember in 2020, and we need to start doing this again, but as you start to learn more about the travesties and the wickedness around the world, human trafficking, uh, child trafficking, what's going on overseas with Christians being martyred everywhere. We, his people, have a responsibility to pray and take that before the throne room of the universe because that cry will reach to heaven to the point that God must act, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I love that the Lord says, I need to show him what I'm going to do because I know how Abraham will manage his household later when he has children. I know what he's going to do with the blessings that I give him. Okay, so the Lord's going to go down. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Okay, so get Abraham's logic here. And he's going through, he's basically calling the Lord out like he was before. He's calling him out saying, hey, you, you've got this call to destroy these cities, but what if there's somebody righteous there? Are you really going to just wipe them away because they live amongst wicked people? So Abraham's pretty gutsy. Pray adventure there be 50 righteous within the city. Will thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 that are therein? 
that be far from thee to do after this manner? In other words, God, there's no way your character would allow that to happen. So are you really going to do that? I mean, Abraham's really, he's with Jesus standing there overlooking the cities, debating him. This is how, this is how bold this guy is. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all earth do right? He knows that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare it all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, okay, Lord, behold, now I've taken upon me to speak, so I'm going to get a little bolder unto the Lord, which am, hey, and I'm dust and ashes, but pray adventure there shall lack five of the 50. Will thou destroy all the city for the lack of the five? And he said, if I find there 40 and five, I'll not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Pray adventure, there shall be 40. And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. So he knows he's pushing the limits at this point, right? Because he's questioning the Lord the whole time. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Pray adventure, there shall be 30 found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, Behold, now I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Pray adventure, there shall be 20 found there. And I will not destroy it for 20. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Pray adventure, 10 shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And the Lord went his way. Basically, the Lord's saying, hey, I'm finished with you questioning my ways. Okay, I know what I'm doing. I got this. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. But you can follow the rabbinical logic. The, the, it's a very Jewish thing that he's doing. He's following the logic and he's getting to the point of saying, would you do it just for one? What if there's just one person that's righteous in that city? Would you destroy it then? Would you destroy the city? And obviously the answer is no. And the principle of Sodom and Gomorrah is that the righteous must be removed before the judgment from the Lord can be unleashed. And who ushers the, the lot and his family out of the city? Angels. Angels usher them out. And angels fight the wicked to get them out. They put blindness on those wicked, twisted guys that are in the city, and they blind them and take Lot and his wife, and they say, you better get everyone right now and get out because the judgment is coming, and follow us. The same may be true. We got in this discussion a little bit in Bible study on Friday morning about the rapture, and I had a guy afterwards ask me if I thought that angels would be the ones to usher us out at the rapture, and it was such an interesting question, but we were talking about this very instance, that the type would be that way because we meet Jesus in the air. It may very well be angels that take us and supernaturally instantaneously take us to him, to meet him in the air. Pretty cool thought. Very cool thought. So we learned something new about Abraham in Stephen's discourse from Acts 7. So in Acts 7.1, if you've never studied Acts 7, Stephen's discourse reveals a lot about the Old Testament that you don't get in the Old Testament. It's new. It's kind of new information. Then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. Now, here's a young man emboldened by Christ. He's sealed with the Holy Spirit at this point. 
he is standing up to the non-religious believers of Jesus and standing up to them, witnessing before them. And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Quran and said unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Remember, we just looked at that in Genesis 12. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Quran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. Now that was not revealed in Genesis, that Abraham waited until his father had passed away before he acted on a certain part of the call. God never told him to wait until his father was dead. And it makes me wonder, if he hadn't done that, would Abraham had seen more of the call, of the extent of it? I don't know, but it's a very interesting concept. And he gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And so when you, you're reading this in Acts 7, verse 6, and God spake on this wise, that his seed so, should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil 400 years. And of course that happened. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that they shall come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. How did they know? Wait till eight days medically. Um, God actually boosts the level of vitamin K in the bloodstream of a child. It peaks at day eight. So clotting is available. And so the child doesn't bleed to death. That's why the God does circumcision on the eighth day. Eight's also the number of new beginnings. On the eighth day, a lot of things happen in the Bible. Just go study the eighth day. It's the number of new beginnings. And what does Jesus say when he calls you? Are you, let, are you to let anything get in the way of your call from the Lord? And so the superiority of the call from Jesus, Luke 9, verse 57, and it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of God, the son of man, hath not where, nowhere, not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. So here is a person with the exact same excuse that Abraham had. Let me first go bury my father. You're calling me to do this. You're calling me to follow you. Let me first go and take care of my family, and then I'll go do that. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Now, there is nothing, Jesus is not forbidding you taking care of your family. What he is forbidding is that you are disobedient to what he tells you to do when he tells you to do it. And if you let anything of the world get in your way of answering his call, he does not look kindly upon that because he's asking, do you trust me? Now, when you step out in a call, you know, this, this particular passage 
uh, means a lot to me personally. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my, my mom is dying of Lewy body dementia. And there, is, there are so many times in my life the last two years that I have said this very thing to God. That, Lord, let me just go take care of my mom. And then we can focus on this church or uh, on the other people or whatever. And he has told me, Luke 9, 59, um, or Luke 9, verse 60, many times over the last two years, not that I don't have a place to go take care of her, but he's calling me to do something different right now. And I have to be okay with his plan of however that unfolds that I'm walking in obedience to him because at the end of the day, that is all that matters is that you walk in obedience. And there have been a lot of blessings in her life that have come out of this, but it's, it's something that we all need to take serious. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, let's be very clear about something. If your household is suffering, your children, your, your marriage, anything like that, if it's suffering and not being held in accordance to God's word of what he wants you to do as a man, if you're head of the household, as a, as a wife, if you are spiritually leading your children, anything like that, he's not going to call you to ministry because you need to take care of the ministry in your home first. And once you have that in order, he will call you to something. And so... Um, the Lord, the Lord works in a, in a, you know, His ways are higher than our ways. And if you, if you all don't mind, I asked the Bible study guys this actually on Friday. But if you all don't mind, I would ask you to please pray for my mom, to pray for her. It's been a very long goodbye. It's been, uh, this has been lasting about seven years now, six years, six and a half years now. But my prayer has just been, Lord, heal her or take her home. And she's getting to the point where she can't talk. Um, I'm, I'm trusting in him completely that she's here for a reason still. And I'm hoping that's, that reason is because she spends a lot of time in prayer on behalf of her children and grandchildren. But I won't know probably until well, the other side of all of this. So the last uh, couple slides here, and we'll wrap up. Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Nowhere in Genesis did God reveal that he told Abram about the new city. Nowhere until here. And you learn that he was looking for the new Jerusalem. He was roaming around the desert looking for a city that God is making for him. And you and I both are heirs of that new city. And that's the namesake that God founded this church on, Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, that new city. One of the things that he said is that everything this church does will be to further build that new city, our forever home as his people. And so we should be sojourning through this world, also looking toward a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we're going to look a lot, we're going to deep 
deep dive into the new city in Hebrews 11, verse 16. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have yet to be fulfilled. That promise, their promise has yet to be fulfilled. And you too have a promise waiting for you that you will not see until you pass from this world to the world eternal. And Jesus even confirms the resurrection of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Matthew. And it's not just their resurrection, but the resurrection of everyone in Matthew 22. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. So the promise, why would God, why would Jesus say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, linking to the resurrection? Well, the reason is because they have unfulfilled promises. They've died thousands and thousands of years ago and thus must be resurrected to inherit those promises. All of their promises are tied to the earth. And I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of the dead, but of the living. They all died not inheriting the promise. Thus, they must be resurrected to inherit. And so you and I are co-heirs with Jesus from Romans 8, 16 through 17. And we too will be resurrected to an inheritance. Our inheritance in Christ, he told me this on Friday, our inheritance in him is incomprehensible, it is indescribable, and it is uncontainable. And I told that to Chris, and he said, dude, that's a song. And I was like, I, I don't know what song you're talking about, but it, there's some Chris Tomlin song, I think, that has those lyrics maybe or something similar in it. But you cannot comprehend the inheritance that Jesus has for you on the other side of this. It's not land from the river Euphrates to the river Nile in Egypt. It is a city whose maker is God. It's not land of the earth. It's not to roam around mountains and trees and rivers. It is to be in a multi-dimensional space with the God of the universe, dwelling in a city, going to and from the earth, ministering to the people of the earth. That's going to be our job in the millennium. We are going to have those white horses that can fly all over the earth, and our, our job, like Jesus said, you will do greater things than thee. So casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, the greater works you're going to do than him, you get to experience all of that in the millennium. And that's the promise that we get to inherit. And so you've got to do exactly what he's telling you to do right now, no matter what it is. Get the full revelation from him. Keep walking with him. Pursue him. And little by little, he'll reveal that to you. And your call, the call on your life, look at Philippians 4.19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All your needs. So the call that you have on your life, he's going to give you everything you need to do it. God never calls you to do something that is like, okay, let's see how you find the resources to do this. Or let's see where you find the strength to follow through with it. Or the people to surround you in prayer. He doesn't do that. He calls you to do it and he meets every need you have to be fulfilled in that call, in the glorious riches in Christ Jesus that you and I will never understand until we get there. 
and you need to act now because that unshakable kingdom is approaching. And God has a kingdom in store with a new city that will never be shaken, will never be destroyed. They will never have an election. They will never have another king. They will never be in poverty. They will never be without. They'll never be in want. And you and I have a place in that kingdom and in that city with an everlasting righteous king that will never give up the throne. And he is going to call us And in the short little blip that we call life, the question is, what do you do with the time you're given? And uh, I went to a a concert last week, a Christian concert, and the guy singing, it was John Mark McMillan, but he was, in between songs, he stopped and he read this letter from his future self, which I thought was hilarious, because my daughter talks a lot about her future self. But he read this letter about his future self and about how you are a miracle, and how his whole message was, if you look at the entire known universe, it is 99.99% emptiness and void without life. In this one little speck on earth, this cosmic miracle that God spoke into existence, you and I, and breathed life into us, what do you do with that miracle? Because he has miraculously brought you to where you are today. And he's got something, a greater inheritance than you could ever imagine for you and I. And so that unshakable kingdom, remember Jesus is going to come back, he's going to destroy the beast system, and you and I have a place in it. So right now is the time to get right with him. Go a few more slides forward, Aaron. We're gonna pray and close this up. So Christ, our goal right now, our mission right now is to watch. And there's a crown for watching from 2 Timothy 4.8. And so you've got to be watchful. You've got to know what's going on in the word of God. You've got to be watching for Jesus to call us home because we have a call on our lives. And there will be a future call to come home. So Matthew 24, verse 42, watch. Matthew 25, 13, watch. Matthew, Mark 13, 33, take ye heed and watch. Luke 21, 36, watch. All through the Bible, Jesus wants you to watch. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. So we've got to be, we have to be watching. And like Abraham, as he got more and more of his call revealed, he was watching for what God would have next for him. And so get into the word of God, build your faith. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's important because without it, you cannot please God. It's impossible to. And you need to do it daily from Acts 17, 11. And how do you go get faith? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so your responsibility, by faith you are called, but you can't have faith if you're not in the word of God. Because every time Abram was called, it was by the word of God. The word of God is what called him, not an experience, not an emotion, not anything else. The word called him out. And so if you're watching this, if you're in this room and you're not saved, uh, get born again today. Don't wait any longer. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You are instantaneously born again and transformed to be a son of the living God and a co-heir with Christ 
if you then pursue after him by the word. And so do that today. If you are watching this wherever you are around the world, if you're watching this, please, please do not delay and get born again now. Lord, I just thank you so much for your call on our lives. By faith, we too are called, just like Abram, to look for a city whose maker is God. And we thank you for that call. We thank you that, Lord, you called us out of a place to sojourn through this world and to look for you and just to be obedient every step of the way. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless your people, the remnant that is rising up in this time from Esther 4.14, that have been called to the kingdom for just such a time as this, that, Lord, you would strengthen us, give us the faith out of your word to press on and to continue. And God, I pray that you would make straight our way and reveal to us the call that you have on our lives. So we thank you, God, and we love you. Be with us in the week ahead, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.